I'd like you to imagine with me for a moment, what would we do as a church if Jesus was scheduled to be the guest speaker in three weeks from today? What would we do to prepare for his coming? What would you plan to bring to that service? I'll tell you what, I think we would get busy, wouldn't we? We'd get busy. We'd start looking around for the person that would take responsibility, I think, to find a larger building, at least for that service. Who's going to take that job? There's somebody else here who's going to need to get food organized, because Jesus taught us that when he's around, it's time to eat, not fast, right? So we've got to eat. Let's get the food ready. Who's going to do it? Who's going to bring what? What else are we going to do? We've got to have a banner. That's only going to be fitting, right? And whatever place that's at, we've got to come up with some type of banner. Who's going to talk to the sign company? And who's going to, we've got to have a committee here to design something to say, Jesus is coming, some type of welcome to the king. What are we going to do? We'd probably have to decorate the place, and certainly we'd need to come up with advertisements, right? Who's going to call the newspaper? Who's going to put something on the radio? Who's going to get a hold of television and let's price it because we've got to let everybody know Jesus is coming. Would we ever be busy? And all of us would be getting busy inviting friends and neighbors and relatives and acquaintances saved and lost to get everyone there to see Jesus. He's on his way. And what would you bring? Bring a lot of things, I suppose, wouldn't we? We'd bring a whole notebook full of questions just in case there was time to ask a few. And we'd come with cameras and video cameras and everything we could. We'd bring all kinds of things to document that Jesus had been in our church. If Jesus was really coming to see us in three weeks, we would be busier than a beehive in a clover field. I think there might be one other thing that we'd need to do. I think we would want to repent of our sins and to purify our hearts. Jesus came to visit us, there might well be some possessions we'd want to throw away first. There might be some clothes we should burn. There might be some places we'd perhaps vow to never go again. There might be some habits we'd want to quit cold turkey. There would be people we would want to seek out in order to ask their forgiveness. There would be long overdue commitments that would need to be made. There would be a reworking of budgets, a reassessment of priorities, long entrenched negative attitudes and jealousies and rivalries would be buried forever. And we would want to hurl selfishness and pride and bitterness and depression and animosity and unthankful spirits into the cauldron of hell. 
and to close the lid and to never turn back. If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming, how would you prepare? If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I mean if you know Him, you have a personal relationship with Him, I think you know where I'm coming from. You know that to see Jesus Christ would mean that there would need to be a preparation of heart to face Him. A repentance would be necessary for all of us. Maybe if Jesus were coming, we'd busy ourselves simply with repenting of sin, seeking God, and calling others to join us. Maybe all the decorating and food preparation and signs and banners and all of that. Really wouldn't matter all that much. Purification of heart and repentance of sin would be the order of those three weeks of preparation. Well, the coming of Jesus in one sense is not imaginary. In another sense, of course, it is for us. And I'm not planning anything in three weeks. But the coming of Jesus was no imaginary exercise for a man in his early 30s who lived in the wilderness region of the rugged Jordan River Valley in Palestine. His name was John, and Jesus really was coming. It should make our skin tingle to think of it. It was about here. The Messiah was about to come. He was about to present himself to Israel. He'd been living there for some time now. A good 30 years, but God was moving, and it was time. It was time for Messiah to bring his message, and John's job now was to prepare the people to meet him. And he did so by calling them to repent of their sins, to change their hard attitude about their sins, and to turn from them in preparation for meeting Christ. We look today at the life of this one, John the Baptist, this forerunner of Jesus the Messiah, this one who would prepare the way. We know a little bit about his upbringing as we've studied it together and I know have read many times through this portion of Scripture, most of us. We've considered together John's miraculous conception, his subsequent birth to Elizabeth. All we know of this man's upbringing is found in one sentence, really, and that's back to chapter 1 and verse 80 of Luke, where it says that the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. We could probably add to that chapter 1 and verse 15, where it says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. This was an unusual man. Some scholars believe that John's old parents died while he was just a boy and that he was left off at the isolated desert community of Qumran near the Dead Sea. I think that's probably filling in a few too many blanks, perhaps, but he lived in that area, and he did essentially what they did. We don't know about any of this, but from the writings of Matthew and Mark, we know that John purposely chose a life of an ascetic prophet. He dressed like the poorest of men. He wore a camel skin. That wasn't fashionable, let me just say it that way. He wore a leather belt. That was also not fashionable. 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. Apparently that was his diet. And I don't know how that goes down no matter when you live. That can't be a whole lot of fun. But the meal was locusts, honey apparently dessert, or maybe the honey helped get the locusts down. I don't know how. But this man was an ascetic. He didn't dress well. He didn't live well. He didn't eat well. But he knew God. And I think he purposefully did all of these things to attract the right kind of attention, and probably in some respects also to link himself to the ministry of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. We read of John's calling here in Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So there he is living in the desert and the word comes to him. We notice here in this section, in these first six verses of this chapter, John's calling. He is chosen by God to prepare the way for Christ by proclaiming a baptism of repentance. We see the date of John's calling. Obviously, Luke thinks that this is a pretty important event. He pinpoints it by naming no less than seven individuals to say, here's when it happened. Here's when the word of God came to John. Tiberius Caesar is the Roman emperor, and Pontius Pilate, we know, will play very heavily into the account as we get to the end of Luke, obviously a key figure. Now Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus, is dead. He parcels out his kingdom to his three sons. We have a visual of this, as you can see, where uh, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, where his region was, this will be the individual who reigns in uh, Galilee during essentially the entire life of Christ. Christ is not living, of course, in Galilee all of his life. He spends some time in uh, Bethlehem. He spends some time in Egypt. But Herod um, Antipas will be the one who rules over Galilee, where Jesus lives most of his life, and where the bulk of his ministry takes place. A very important individual just to set up for us historically in the book of Luke. Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea. That's because another son of Herod, Archelaus, got basically booted out. And from that time on, there was a Roman prefect that ruled over Judea. This Herod the Tetrarch is the important individual to us here. You'll notice also in uh, verse 2, there is reference there to Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. Now, there's only supposed to be one high priest. But Annas is really the power behind the high priest, who at this time was Caiaphas, his uh, son-in-law. And Annas had four sons preceding him that were the high priest. By this time, and all of this to say, the high priesthood had become extremely corrupt. It was a political award that was given by the Romans to the right Jew. There's to be one high priest, and he's to serve the rest of his life. There had been many high priests, and Annas is pulling the strings and ruling. So there's just one. That's not what Luke means here, that there are two. But Annas is essentially the high priest. As a matter of fact, many people in Israel would have said he is the high priest, since the high priest is to serve until he's dead, and Annas is not dead. But Annas and Caiaphas have this 
faction, that they are working with power and leverage. As a matter of fact, as you look back at all of these names, what it says to us is this. John was called to ministry at a time of tremendous corruption. It was a fallen world. As Edersheim puts it, it was a society just like that of the first Elijah, a society secure, prosperous, and luxurious, yet in imminent danger of perishing from hidden, festering disease, and to a religious community which presented the appearance of hopeless perversion, and yet contained the germs of a possible regeneration. It is to this world that John is called. The date, if we take Harold Honer's uh, date, which I tend to follow, it's possible that it's not exactly accurate, but I think that he's right. He's as good as anybody, and that would be 29 A.D. Jesus is probably 32 years of age. John is six months older. So Jesus has waited 20 years after his visit at age 12 to the temple. He's waited 20 years, two decades for God's timing. 20 years he's lived in Nazareth in a carpenter's shop waiting for God to move. And during that time, John has been living in the wilderness as an ascetic. Now we see his mandate there also in verse 2. The word of the Lord came to John. The word of the Lord. The word of God. In other words, after centuries of prophetic silence, a prophet was again on sight in Israel. God was moving. Redemption's plan was about to take a giant step forward. Where is this man located? The end of verse 2, he's located in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's his message. But I'd like to know just, uh, first of all, his location, because it is very important. He's in the desert. He's in all the country around Jordan. We'll take a look at that here on the map. You can see a little bit of the topography, of the high ridge here running through Jerusalem. There's, of course, a great descent into the Jordan Plain. We don't know exactly all of John's location, but he's apparently around the Dead Sea and working his way up the Jordan River in this remote, rugged area where Jesus will be baptized. If I could jump ahead, we'll be right about here. In, in, uh, on the Jordan if our uh, geography is accurate. There are some questions as to where that was, but it's, uh, he will end up being imprisoned here. Some would think that Jesus was baptized down here. That's, that's really not important, but it, just to say that all the region of the Jordan, John is moving up and down this rugged area by the Jordan River and using that river, perhaps even the Dead Sea at times, to baptize individuals. But there is more than just a physical citation here. We notice that John is in the desert and he's preaching there this message of forgiveness. There's a theological meaning here, I believe, as well. You could not be a Jew and fail to see the significance of John's location. What is the wilderness? The desert, the wilderness. So we think, think desert, don't think miles of open, openness and just sand. It's not that, but it's a rugged area. There's little growth, but there's these, these uh, cliffs and, and, and hills, and it's a very difficult place to live. He's out there in the wilderness. It's not a populated area at all. But he's out there in the desert. To the Jew, the desert was no place for a human being to live. You had to be half crazy to live in this area. 
The desert was a place then of what one is called eschatological association. All, of that, all that means is this. The wilderness to the Jew was a metaphor for deliverance and redemption. The wilderness is where God gave the law to Moses after the nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt. The wilderness is where God raised up a generation of faithful Israelites who would conquer the land of Canaan. And for the Jews, the wilderness was now a place to seek God in solitude and separation from the affairs of the world. It was also the abode of many other ascetics, and it was the abode, for that matter, of a whole lot of kooks. Those possessed of the demons were driven out where? Into the wilderness. Outside society. This was the place to survive with the lions and the snakes and the vultures. With little water, nothing to grow. The wilderness. That's where John is. Now we see his message, the burden of his preaching, verse 3. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We understand about Baptists, uh, baptism as Baptists, uh, but what is also evident of John's baptism, and that is this, that baptism was never seen as a means of earning God's forgiveness. It's never the bi biblical idea of baptism. Baptism is always an external symbol that one has already been forgiven by God's saving grace. It's interesting, even the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus understood this about John's baptism. He reports, he writes about John's ministry in the Jordan River Valley, and he says this, that those who came to John's baptism, it was intended for those who, quote, came to it, not in order to be putting away of some sins, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So even a Jew, Josephus, understood about John's baptism. This was not a way of gaining your salvation. It was a way of evidencing what had happened in your heart. And think about where he's positioned. If you're going to make your way all the way out there in the wilderness, risking all types of danger from robbers and from lions and the like, something's happened inside generally speaking. Now, sometimes it was a hypocritical motivation. We'll get to that in a moment. The point is, those who submitted to John's baptism, something had happened in their heart. He is preaching a message of repentance and people are responding. John's mission is to call Israel to turn from their sins and to be baptized in evidence. For the Jews, that would have been an act of utter humility to be baptized. The Jews did practice self-administered baptisms, ritual cleansings. But to have someone else baptize you and to identify with that baptism was in part to say, I'm not okay as a Jew. The people who were baptized were Gentile proselytes who were becoming Jews. They would be baptized into the Jewish faith. So those Jews who are going out to John are saying, we need something. There's a need for repentance. And they were submitting to that baptism. Now John wasn't just some hotshot preacher out here that decided one day on a new approach. Everything that John did was in line with the divine command. And I think that's the point of verse 4. As it is written. In other words, all that John is doing comes in, in accordance as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40 for us. 
A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. This is a quotation, as I mentioned, from the prophet Isaiah. John was nothing less than the long prophesied forerunner of Messiah. And John was not the first preacher to point to my Messiah. He was the last in a long string of preachers. John was above all else, it says here, a voice. His message defined him. A voice crying out, get ready, Messiah is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now in that setting, that made perfect sense. When an ancient king was scheduled to visit a village or a city, would send a, he would send a courier ahead and say, prepare the way. Now what that meant in part was that the people of the village or the city where he was about to visit would go out and check out the roads and make sure that everything was right. They'd fill in the ruts. They'd straighten out some, some of the sharp turns. They'd level off any of the bumps in the road. Well, John uses that analogy and he expands it and says, let's think of the bumps as mountains. And let's think of the ruts as valleys. And Messiah is coming. Let's fill in the valleys and knock off the tops of the mountains and let's make a massive road for Messiah to walk on. What kind of road is John paving? So let that question sit for a while. But before we do, we see first, verse 6, that all mankind will see God's salvation. That's the point. When they see Messiah, they'll see the salvation of God. Now let's think about that. That's what God is doing. I think it's very instructive here to consider John's approach. I mean, really, when you think about it, he's nuts. And I'm sure there are a lot of people saying, yeah, John's exactly where he belongs, all with all those other demoniacs out there. His approach would give the church growth experts of our day apoplexy. He is doing it all wrong. Messiah is coming. The King of Israel is with us. All mankind must see God's salvation. Where then, John, is the glitzy media attractions? Where's the press conference? Where's your crystal cathedral? Where is your appeal to the felt needs, John? Here he is in the rugged wilderness where nobody can get to him easily. He's wearing a camel skin and eating bugs for the main course and honey for dessert. He's doing everything wrong from the standpoint of our world. But he's right on track with God. I'm not saying that we should necessarily imitate John. That would be ridiculous too. God's not called us to that. But the point is, everything that would seem to work to draw a crowd, John breaks the rules. For some 30 years, John had waited patiently for God to prepare him, and this is how God prepared him. It's amazing. John does so Clearing this path for Messiah, he does so primarily through the word of the Lord that came to him. John is given a message to announce to Israel. Beginning at verse 7, we see that message fleshed out a little more. John calls people to repent of their sins and to embrace Jesus as Messiah. 
Let's get the scene one more time. This itinerant preacher working his way up and down the rugged Judean wilderness, working into the Jordan River Valley, dressed like the poorest of the poor, living like the poorest of the poor. And what is the response? The people are streaming out to him. John could have gone to Jerusalem and saved everybody trouble. Everybody's got to be there for these festivals anyway, and that's where everyone who is anybody shows up at some time in Palestine, in Jerusalem. He makes everybody go to him. Let me say it this way, God makes everybody go to him. They have to get out there through all that rugged terrain and sit down in very less than ideal circumstances. There was no air conditioning and nice padded seat. They had to sit down in the wilderness and listen. First, I imagine they had to find him through word of mouth and then to listen. And what they heard scorched their ears. We see that his message was an exhortation to repentance. We have some representative excerpts from his preaching here in verses 7 through 9. Here's essentially what it was like. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Wasn't really a compliment, all right? You snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Again, not really very complimentary. And he continues, verse 9, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will, give, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's essentially his message, sort of a snippet from his sermons. Why does he call them snakes? I mean, that's kind of rough, isn't it? Well, the imagery is very clear. And I, I might add here, if this is fair to do, I think Matthew brings out the fact that these are essentially Pharisees and Sadducees that are coming out to him in this particular group. Now, John or, or Luke rather just records this as the crowds, but he's really pretty rough on these guys, and in part that's because many of them are probably Pharisees and Sadducees. And the imagery is very clear to all of them. The desert floor would sometimes erupt in fire and spread rapidly as, the, as this dry brush would catch fire, maybe with lightning or something of, of the sort. Uh, in some way it would catch fire in the heat of the day, and what happens with all, in all the crevices and cracks and crannies of the rugged rocks? You know, all the snakes come running out from the, from the uh, fire. They want to get away. So that's what you're like. The fire of God's wrath is coming, and you're just like snakes. You'd be quite happy if it wasn't for the fire. But now you come slithering out here to me to hear this message of repentance. He puts it right to them. And says, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent and live. Let's think a moment about repentance. It's a change of heart that shows itself in action. Repentance without works is dead. Beware, warns John. Don't fool yourself. As a matter of fact, the middle of verse 8, if you think Abraham's your father and that's good enough for you, think again. The Jews may have thought, we're blood relatives of Abraham, surely that's good enough. We're inheritors by birth of the promise that God made to Abraham, surely God will keep his word. 
Talmud claimed that the night was the destiny of the nations of the world, but the morning belonged to Israel. No, says John, God saves lives. God saves people, not nations, not families. He saves people. The faith that Abraham had is the faith that you must have. Not by proxy, but by experience. Let me say that to all, and particularly the young people that are here in our assembly today. It isn't going to do you any good before God to grow up in a godly home. Now it will do you a world of good in preparing to you to live rightly. And you should thank God for every good thing that happens in your home. But it is not going to make any difference when you come before God that your parents were Christians. You have to face God alone. And you have to be ready for that. Don't talk to me about Abraham, said John. I want to know of what's in your heart. Do you know God? Have you repented? Don't hold on to the fringe of Abraham's coat. When you meet God, you'll meet him face to face alone. So get ready. Verse 9, what does that mean? The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Well, let's just pretend we're imagining here today. Let's imagine you're a squirrel. And you've got this home way up high in a tree. And you're going about your business one morning, eating your nuts or whatever you're doing up there in your little nest. And you look down and, well, there's the owner of the house where you live and bury your peanuts in his yard or whatever and don't think much of it. And then you look down again and right in front of his feet, right at the base of your tree, is a nice, new, shiny chainsaw. Well, it might behoove you at that point to start thinking about plan B, right? You're in trouble. The chainsaw is laid at the root of the tree. Or in this analogy, the axe is laying there against the tree. The guy's just wiping the sweat off his forehead and he's just about to start chopping. Israel, you are in deep moral rot. The axe is laid at the tree and the judgment of God is about to fall There's one thing for you to do. Repent. Turn now to God. Well, we have some representative responses now at this point, beginning at verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Don't get the idea here. This is all that John said. These are just snippets out of some sermons, some examples of what we are to do. A question from the general public. John had made his point well, didn't he? What do they say here? What are we to do? It's not simply what are we to believe. That's part of it. But what are we to do on the basis of what we believe? Repentance acts. It does things. So what are we to do, John? You got a tunic. A tunic was a shorter, like, t-shirt almost. But it was like a shorter robe under the over robe. And many times the Jews would have a couple of them handy. They might even wear two of them to stay warm one day. They might have one with them if they're traveling to change. You got two tunics and the guy next to you doesn't have any, you give him one. You have some food with you and the guy next to you doesn't have any food and you're sitting down for lunch and you travel along the road. 
you share your food with him. Simple point is you think about others and you meet their needs and help and love. Tax collectors came out to him. This is really exciting. I mean, the tax collectors come out, verse 12. They came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? It's amazing that these people came. The fact that tax collectors were here is astonishing. They were religious outcasts and were generally people who long ago steeled their heart against what anybody cared or thought they should do. They made a living farming out their services to Rome and collecting taxes from people and taking some of it for themselves, extorting, intimidating, manipulating, power leverage was their game. Here they are sitting at the feet of John the Baptist and saying, what should we do? That's repentance. How do we change our lives? Here they come with their massive bank accounts and their wealthy palaces and all of their luxurious food and all of the money and prestige and power and position. People who don't care what their people think. They say, give it to me, John. What do I do? He says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Well, there goes their wealth. There goes the life as they've known it. You just take what you're supposed to take. And that means what? It means get into the skin of the people that you're taxing and do what you would want them to do to you. And here's the clincher. Live that way. Live that way. Then some soldiers asked him. Now, I think probably here we have Jewish soldiers as opposed to Roman soldiers. Some reasons for that, but we'll assume that here. They said, what should we do? I think probably these soldiers are in fact the soldiers who went along with the tax collectors, very likely, and enforced the taxes and did the bidding of the Annases and Caiaphases and the like. And they're saying to him, what should we do? It's difficult to believe here that we have Roman soldiers who really don't respond to the gospel until much time later, uh, much later, and also not until some teaching of Jesus and really after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, you remember, came to proclaim the gospel to Israel at first, and it's hard to believe that John is passing him up. But all of that, I'm starting to explain why I'm saying it's Jewish soldiers here. The point is, they're saying, what do we do? What does he say? Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Again, don't use your position to take advantage of others. Be honest. Be content. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? John doesn't say, this is the way I'd think, and if you're honest, you probably think the same thing. John should say, quit working for Rome, would you? That's not what he says, and that's not the message that Jesus is going to bring, to quit working for Rome. What John does say is to treat others ethically and graciously. And I think it says to us that the pride of an unrepentant heart shows itself in greed and shows itself in using power and position against others and shows itself in discontentment. If you're discontent, you have an unrepentant heart. We need to ask ourselves, are you treating others unfairly? in your position, maybe at work, 
Are you using your position against people unfairly? God calls you to repent. Are you content with where God has placed you in life? Do you complain about your wages, about your employer? God says, repent. As Barclay puts it, nowhere can a man serve God better than in his day's work. It's hard to do some days, isn't it? To serve right where God has placed us and to do what he's given us to do today and to wait year after year after year after year. Thirty years for John and Jesus just doing what God had given them to do with contentment. A sign of a repentant heart then is ethically loving other people, being contented and having a giving spirit. His exhortation to repent. There is with that then an exhortation to embrace Christ as Messiah. That's how Scripture always unfolds. Here's the negative. Here's what you put off. Here's what you despise. Here's what you leave. And then here's what you put on. Here's what you embrace. Here's how you live. God never leaves us empty. You don't sweep out the demons and clean out the house or it'll be filled with more demons, Jesus said, in short order. You put off one thing and you put on another. So here it is. Now there's a public inquiry that leads into all this. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly. That's an understatement. Messianic uh, expectations were at a fever pitch. And they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. It's quite a compliment to him, isn't it? His preaching was obviously quite powerful. People thought he might actually be the Messiah. He's got the stuff. John answered them all, and he said three things. As he thrust a dagger into the soap bubble of popular acclaim really quickly. He says, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Christ's superior person. You remember now, Israel is a kingdom of liberated slaves. And nothing was more horrifying to a Jew than to become a slave, and many did. Disciples were called upon to perform for their rabbis every service which a slave would provide, except for one, history teaches us, and that is that the sandal thong would not be untied. The feet would not, be a wa- would not be washed. In other words, tending to a man's feet was a job only for the lowest slaves, even for a disciple who did everything for the master. John says, I'm not even worthy for that. Now Hebrews 4.16 says that we are to come boldly before the throne of God. But if we look at it rightly, we're not worthy to even bend down before Christ and untie his shoelace, and take his shoe off for him. We're not worthy of it. That's the key. The disciples will, in the end, argue with Jesus, and they'll talk back to him, and they'll interact with him. Jesus didn't walk around with airs saying, everybody's got to bow down before me, and I might let you untie my sandal. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in his power and greatness and glory, did what? He untied the sandals and washed the feet. 
what John is saying is, I don't deserve to do anything for this man. Jesus' superior person. Verse 16, Jesus' superior baptism is also mentioned. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Do you see the connection there? I baptize you with water, verse 16, end of verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John contrasts the superiority of a divine inner cleansing to his own baptism with water. This one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I think it's probably a reference to Pentecost. There's some problems with this phrase, and I, we don't have the time to go into it very deeply. It would be easily 30 minutes to untie this and just lay out the ideas. What does it mean to baptize with the Spirit and fire? Probably contextually he means baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, which will take place at Pentecost after Jesus is gone, has ascended. But you'll notice there in the NIV, if you have that there with you, verse 16, that last sentence, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, it should read. That second with is put there for stylistic reasons, but really the two go together. He's going to baptize you in two things, the Spirit and fire. How do we make that work, since fire is always imagery for judgment in the, in the Old Testament? Now, it doesn't work really for me anyway to say the flames at Pentecost. It was like flames, and who knows what it was. It didn't singe anybody's hair when the flames of Pentecost came and hovered over individuals. Who knows what that was about? It, I'd like to say it's purifying fire. There's some problems with that. So I think the best idea is that it's a reference to Christ's coming ministry when believers will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and unbelievers will be judged for their rejection of Christ. You'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire, all of you. Some of you in judgment, some of you in salvation. Could be a lot of other explanations. But the point is simply this. His work is superior to mine. I'll baptize you in water. He's going to baptize you in the Spirit and fire. We see the superiority of Christ's judgment in, ver in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the weed into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The picture here is of the ancient threshing system. The grain would be tread out, maybe some oxen walking around in a circle, and there'd be a millstone or something that would grind up, or in some way they'd walk across the grain or something but it would separate the grain from the chaff. Then they would take a big old shovel and throw the grain up in the air. Chaff would blow away, fall somewhere in the area probably, but the grain would be taken into a barn and then the, the threshing floor would be cleaned with fire. Just light a fire and all the chaff quickly explodes into fire and is gone and it keeps it clean. That's the work that Jesus will perform, John says. Probably in distinction from verse 16, I think this is dealing with the final judgment that God renders on the heart of the lost. In other words, the fire you are running from, you snakes, it's coming, and Jesus will bring it. Or he'll gather you into his barn as his own. Now, verse 18 reminds us that what precedes is simply representative. But I want you to notice one thing here in verse 18, if you'll hang with me a little bit longer here. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the, what does it say? The good news. Uh, I don't think what John's been saying is going to register as good news to anybody in our day. You snakes running from a fire... 
The axe is laid at your tree. You're about to be cut down as a rotten, worthless tree and replaced with something that grows. And God calls it good news. And if you've not come to that place in your life where you understand that this is good news, you've got something to learn. One of the best messages of good news that God has ever given is that we are sinners. You know it deep within, and he knows it with infinite perception. We're sinners. That's hope. Because once we come to embrace that we are sinners, something can happen about it. John preaches this good news, proclaiming the gospel without calling a sinner to repentance. Without calling a sinner to turn from sin is an incomplete message. If there's any question on that, just read Acts 2 and Acts 3 and the first messages of the early church. The imperative in those messages was repent. It was not merely, here's some facts I want to share with you about Jesus. There was a moral imperative in those messages. You must turn from sin. I understood that, I think, growing up in a good church, but I didn't really get it. And I'll tell you, it's really cut down the number of professions of faith I've been privileged to participate in over the years. When you talk to somebody and you simply say, here's what Jesus did for you, isn't that wonderful? It's really not so hard to say, yeah, that's wonderful, let me thank God for that, and to convince somebody that they're saved now because they've heard the gospel. They know what Jesus did. There's something more to it when we present that gospel as Peter presents it and says, you're not going to repent in order to prepare for salvation. But if you really understand what Jesus did, then you know that you are a sinner and you must turn from your sin. You've got to leave it. John's preaching was highly regarded and many embraced this call to repentance but not everyone. Verse 19, And when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, wait a minute, Herod the Tetrarch's kind of powerful guy. He rebuked him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Herod added this to, all, to them all. He locked John up in prison. John exhorts Herod to repent of adultery. On a trip to Rome, Herod Antipas seduced Herodias, who was the wife of his half-brother Philip. Herodias also happened to be the daughter of Herod Antipas' half-brother Aristobulus. So follow this one. Herodias was not only another man's wife. She was Herod's sister-in-law. She was not only his sister-in-law, she was his niece. But Herod and Herodias both divorced their mates to take up their new life together in what was obviously a very sordid affair. And John spoke his mind about it. So Herod throws him in prison. Throws him in the dungeon castle of Machaerus, located somewhere on the shores of the Dead Sea. John never left the desert. 
And we're reminded that the call to repentance can sometimes be costly to the messenger. It would have been a lot safer for John to just say nothing, keep his mouth shut, mind his own business, and perhaps in certain circumstances that would be the case and be right. We can't all call attention to every sin. But John knew in his position he had to speak, and so he spoke up. And he paid a heavy price for it. There's people paying that heavy price today for speaking up against sin. And you read the papers. You know what's going on in this city today, this weekend, what's going on across this land in more than one area. And you know that there is a day coming for us, Eden Baptist Church. We're going to have to stand up to some things that people don't want to hear about. Now, we've always had to do that, but there's a changing wind in our culture, more than one. And we're going to have to identify with the repentance message of Christ, or we're going to have to just keep our mouths shut and fit in to the system. It's not going to always be pretty, but we've got to do it. Let me make a couple points here. As we close, following in John's legacy, there comes a litany of similarly brave people who have called sinners to repentance at the cost of their lives. We need to understand nothing's going wrong, particularly here. This is the way of God's people. Barclay again tells the story of Andrew Melville, the reformer. In those days, people died regularly for their religious convictions. And Melville spoke out against the powers that be, the Roman church. And in response, the region of Scotland, Earl of Morton, threatened Melville. I should just throw in here that Scotland one day embraced Presbyterianism, the whole nation. But there was a day when that wasn't the case. And the way for Scotland to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ was paved with blood. And the Earl of Morton threatened Millville, there will never be quietness in this country till half a dozen of you be hanged and banished. To which Melville replied in part, it is the same to me whether I rot in the air or in the ground. God be glorified. It will not lie in your power to hang nor to exile the truth. We may suffer now the wrath of man for doing right, or we can suffer in the end the wrath of God for refusing to repent. As I see it, that's a pretty easy choice. Don't we learn something very important here about God? About how God chose to clear the way for Jesus' coming. How was that way prepared? 
not by repairing highways and cordoning off streets, not by assembling chariots and hiring charioteers and heralds, not by blowing trumpets and unfurling fancy banners and glitzy signs. The way of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was paved by a single man standing in a remote river valley dressed in rugged clothing, eating food that was fit only for animals and calling sinners to repent. That's how God paved the way. The pathway John cleared for Messiah was a pathway of broken hearts. That great highway of filling in the valleys and knocking off the tops of mountains so that the Messiah could come was that of repentance. Preparation for meeting Jesus was a turning from sin. Let me say to any that might be addressing here today, if you believe that you are headed for heaven, but you do not know the joy of repentance, you need to think again. And if you think repentance is nothing but an intellectual acceptance of who Jesus is and what he did, you need to think again. Repentance is the fruit of genuine salvation, and righteous living is the fruit of genuine repentance. Yes, we will continue to struggle with sin. But if you're comfortable with your sin, if you persist in your sin with no hatred of it, you just wish people get off your case about it. Let me say very lovingly and gently, but very truthfully, you are not ready to meet Jesus. If you love sin and hate repentance, I plead with you today to stop, to take a look at the wrath of God that is hanging over your head like a dark cloud about to burst. Turn to Him. For the love of God, turn from your sin. Repent and embrace Christ for who He is. If you know Christ as your Savior, you know the joy of repentance, and then I think repentance will be a way of life. A life where we are ever turning from sin and putting on righteousness. Is it well with your soul this morning, believer? From what is God calling you to turn away today? You know what He's saying. You know what He's telling you. Are you ready to meet Him today? Do you harbor a critical unkind, harsh, judgmental, impatient, unthankful spirit? It's time to repent. Are you in a rut of prayerlessness? Are you robbing God of tithes and offerings? Are you useless as a witness for Jesus? It's time to repent. Do you despise another believer? Have you wronged someone and not made it right? Have you slandered someone, gossiped, run someone down? Are you living in disobedience to your parents? It's time to repent. Are you selfish, jealous, greedy, discontent, taking advantage of others? It's time to repent. Have you embraced a habit that you know that dishonors God? If you'd give it up cold turkey if Jesus were coming in three weeks, then you better give it up now. It's time to repent.
What is it that you've got to leave? Without leaving it, you're not ready to see Jesus. And so I say with John, get ready, because the King is coming. He's coming, and what a joy it will be to stand before him with clear conscience, to embrace him and his grace. Let's think on that in prayer for a few moments. Lord, search our hearts. Lead us to repentance. If you looking down see one here that does not know you as personal Savior, I ask that they would have the Spirit in their heart to go down to the desert or whatever it took to get in front of the truth and to come to saving faith today. Those of us who know you as Savior, we all need to repent. We all have sin in our lives. But maybe there's someone here that knows that in a very unique way, you are talking to them directly. I pray, dear God, that you'd purify that heart and pull that person to yourself today. That they'd turn around, leave their sin, and walk in righteousness today, now. In Christ's name I pray, amen.